Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. We're in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written on which no one knows except him who receives it. How does a Christian deal with living in the midst of a pagan culture? Now, the Christians in the first century, in this particular city, the church at Pergamos, they certainly lived in the midst of a pagan culture. But I would submit to you that this is a very contemporary letter because we live in the midst of a very pagan culture. Christians for the last 2,000 years have answered that question very differently. Jesus taught his disciples that they were to be separated from their culture, meaning set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are then to be sent back into our culture to share the gospel with our culture. So we're in, but not of the culture. But then there are other Christians who believe you need to compromise with the culture. When in Rome, do as Rome. And there were Christians in the city of Pergamos who were doing as Rome did, and we're not living very distinctive lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the letter here from the Lord Jesus, now remember, the Apostle John wrote this letter. He's the human author, but Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is the true author of this letter. And so the fact that these letters, seven letters, were sent to all seven churches reminds us that these letters were for the church in every generation, and though not every aspect of every church is going to be true of our church, there are certain aspects from these churches that is true even of our church here some 2,000 years later. And unfortunately for the church of Pergamos, it was Jesus revealed there was too much Pergamos in the church of Pergamos. Now Pergamos was a very important city. The Romans had made Pergamos the capital of the province of Asia. And that map that we'd like to show you of the seven churches of Asia Minor, I remind you, it's not the Asia that we know today. This was the Roman province of Asia Minor. These seven churches were fairly, you know, uh, close to one another in a certain sense. And for his own reasons, Jesus chose those seven churches to write these letters to. 
Now, Pergamos was a city known for its scholarship. They had a library. It's estimated the archaeologists say they had some 2,000 volumes in that library. Antony eventually came and took the library to Egypt and gave it to Cleopatra. But it was a city known for scholarship. It was known for education, probably very intellectual, which kind of shows us that it isn't just education that makes a person moral. It's not education that makes a culture moral, because this was a very immoral culture. The word parchment is derived from the name Pergamus. Pergamus was also the first city that was allowed to build a temple to Caesar. We've been talking in these letters, and we'll continue to see that, that the Romans uh, believed Caesar was God. And so what you had to do was you had to take a pinch of incense and put it on the altar and declare Caesar is God. Then you could go worship whatever God you wanted to. The Romans had a, a, a plethora of gods, and they didn't care who you worshipped as long as you declared that Caesar was God. So Pergamus uh, had the great honor of being the first city to actually build a temple to Caesar. The city became a very famous center of religious worship. Like many of these cities, there were many temples in the city of Pergamus, but the most prominent were the gods, the temples to the gods Zeus, Dionysus, Athena, and Asclepius. It was very difficult and very dangerous to be a Christian in Pergamus in the first century. Now, I wish I could stand up here and say, uh, I did really great planning in having uh, Vernon come. Vernon was here with us last Sunday, and he presented to us a powerful message about the persecuted church around the world. And it just so happened this was a date that Vernon had free, but it's interesting how the Holy Spirit puts things together. And we're going to see through so many of these letters this issue of martyrdom. And Vernon reminded us that there are Christians being martyred every day around the world. In fact, there are more Christians being martyred in the 21st century than all the centuries put together. And so martyrdom is a very real thing. And why are these people being killed? Simply because they are Christians. There was a great temple to Zeus in the city of Pergamos. It was on a hill... And people would flock to that temple. In 1920, German archaeologists took it apart, and then they put it back together and kind of remade it. And so you can go see this temple. It's in the uh, city of Berlin at the, uh, t at, at the Museum of Pergamum. And notice the massive size of this temple. Imagine this temple was sitting on top of a hill behind the city. And you can imagine in your mind people flooding to the temple and going up the steps and offering their pagan sacrifices to Zeus. But these temples not only was a matter of sacrifice, there were all kinds of festivals and feasts, which almost all of them uh, had immoral practices and all kinds of unthinkable debauchery. And so this is the city where this small church of Christians were living in Pergamos. Now, Every letter begins with a portion of the vision of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1. So Christ himself decides what portion of that vision he wants each church to have. And though all seven letters were written to all seven churches, each letter is unique to that particular church. 
So it's always very important for us to understand, okay, what part of the vision did, did Jesus want to start this letter with at the, at the city of, of Pergamum? Well, the letter begins with a focus upon judgment. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword. The Roman proconsul of that region had his office in Pergamus. He was granted what was called the right of the sword by the emperor, which simply meant that was the power of life and death. The proconsul could decide who lives and who dies. And he didn't need a, there was no jury, there was no appeal. He had the right to the sword. Tradition says that when the proconsul would go through the streets in a great procession, a slave would walk before him with a giant sword that was held up in the air to remind the people who was in charge, who had the authority, that they were under the power of Rome because the sword of Rome was the symbol of their power and of their ultimate authority. The reason Rome ruled the world was because of the Roman legions, the might and power of the Roman legions. So what is Jesus reminding them of? He's reminding them that he is the one who possesses all power and all authority. And these Roman emperors have since passed into dust, and these Roman empires have all fallen. But Jesus Christ continues to rule and continues to reign. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Now, these Christians face great challenges. And we face challenges as living for Christ in the midst of our culture, which is becoming more and more pagan and anti-Christian as the years go by. So notice that Jesus knows the challenges that each of his disciples face. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's an interesting phrase. He said, I know your struggles. I know where you're living. I recognize that where this church is, is where Satan's throne is. Now, we're not certain what exactly Jesus has in mind here. Could possibly refer to that great temple of Zeus that was up on the, the hillside. Could be the general fact that the whole city was given over to pagan, idolatrous, and immoral worship. Some think it might be referring to the temple of Caesar that was in the city of Pergamos. You see, Satan is not omnipresent. Omnipresent means that he is present everywhere all the time. God is omnipresent. Jesus is omnipresent. He's present everywhere all the time at the same time. But Satan is not. He's a very powerful created spirit being, but he's not omnipresent. So there are certain times and places where Satan, in a sense, manifests his presence more intently Himself, and apparently that was true of Pergamum in the first century. Some think it was a reference to the temple of Asclepios. This was the god of healing. In that temple, people would come to that temple if they had a malady and they wanted to be healed. And there was one room in the temple, it was completely dark, and they filled that temple with snakes, snakes that would not kill you. 
and people would actually go in there to worship this goddess and they would sleep all night in this temple in total darkness while the snakes slithered over their body. Anybody up for that? We could put a room like that here at church, you know. We, I don't think so. Can you imagine, you see, when people forget God, when people will not believe in the Lord, when people refuse to follow the Lord, when people reject the word of God, they fall prey to all kinds of unbelievable things. And so they would go in there and hopefully in the morning or later on they would find that they had been healed. That pagan custom certainly came from the old serpent himself, Satan. You know, the current medical symbol is a picture of a, a pole with two snakes wound around it. It's kind of interesting. So Pergamos at that time seems to have been the center of satanic influence. And would you note something? Satan's throne is not in hell. You know, we got this fanciful idea that Satan's in hell. He's ruling and reigning in hell. No, he's not. The Bible says in 1 Peter, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith. Satan is not existing in hell. He will one day, but he won't be ruling. He will be the number one prisoner when he's cast eventually into the lake of fire. But Satan is alive and well, and he's roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. So these Christians dwelling in Pergamos had to live for Christ in this superstitious, pagan, immoral, ungodly culture. And remember, according to the Romans, every Roman had to swear to see, every Roman had to take a pinch of incense, put it on an altar, and declare, Caesar is God. If you did that, Rome would leave you alone. Rome would say, you can go back to your Christian Jesus, your Christian God. You can worship whatever God you want to, as long as you agree and declare that Caesar is God. But the Christians couldn't do that, because they knew it wasn't true. They knew that only Jesus was God. They had sworn allegiance to Christ, and they would not give up their testimony and they would not declare the false belief that Jesus is God, or that Rome is God, or that Caesar is God. So, notice how Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. Verse 13, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. So they're living in the midst of a pagan culture, demon activity, all kinds of immorality, these festivals and feasts and all that was happening in the culture all the pressures of that to conform to the culture. And yet here was this group of believers who were living faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' name represents all that he is. So they continued to remain loyal to Jesus. They would not take a pinch of incense and put it on the altar, even though that would take them out from under the Roman authority and they could worship Christ all they wanted to, but they would not deny the Lord's name. They continued to remain loyal to Jesus. Vernon last week showed us how many Christians around the world are being killed. And why are they being killed? Simply because they are Christians. Because they will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And in many places, 
They are giving their lives for their faith. The word here, hold fast, means to seize with strength. These Christians were holding on and hanging on, and they had made a resolve that they would not turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. They did not deny my faith. They held tenaciously to the truth. Jude 3, Jude says, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was long ago delivered to the saints. See, these believers saw the the word of God and the truth of Scripture as a trust that was handed to them, that they would hand to their children, just as you saw uh, illustrated in the baptism here, a father baptizing his son, one generation to the next generation. Every time I stand up here, I'm very aware that I stand on the shoulders of, of godly people who have gone before, who founded this church, who invested in this church, who caused this church to be what it is today. And so we've been given a trust, passed on from them. Now it's our responsibility to hold that truth in trust, no matter how pagan the culture gets, no matter how much people look at us and think we're just a bunch of silly Christians, why can't you just go along to get along with all the insanity that's going on? Because we will not live by lies, we will not recant, we will not let up. We understand the truth and we're going to live the truth. And they held fast even under the threat of death. Even under the threat of death. Look at verse 13. He says, you've been faithful even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The word here, martyrs, always meant witness in the classical Greek. In fact, some of your translations have faithful witness. A martyr in Greek culture was someone who said, this is true and I know it. And they would give testimony to that fact. But when the time of the New Testament came, the word meant martyr. Because as Christians, as we saw last week in many parts of the world, to be a witness often meant to be a martyr. To witness for Christ is often to suffer for Christ. Tradition says that Antipas was roasted to death on a bronze altar shaped like a bull. He would not take a pinch of incense. He would not declare Caesar is God. And so he died for his faith. And notice these Christians who are being faithful, they witness this. Because he says, who was killed among you. So even in the face of death. Jesus commends the faithful remnant in the church at Pergamos for being faithful to him. But there was something Jesus rebuked them for. He rebuked them for their tolerance of sinners in their midst. Boy, in our culture today, don't we hear a lot about tolerance? You Christians are so intolerant. You know, you're so intolerant. Why can't you go along with all this gender dysphoria? Why can't you go along when we say a, a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man and a man can have children, all this silliness that's happening, which, by the way, is ruining a lot of lives, a lot of children's lives. Oh, be tolerant. Well, those were some of the Christians in the church at Pergamos. I don't believe all of them were. I think there was a faithful remnant, but there were some who wanted to tolerate some of this false teaching. Verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. 
If Satan can't destroy a congregation as a roaring lion, he will come as a subtle serpent. And so often he comes this way. You think Satan was to learn his lesson that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church, and you heard Vernon talk about how in many of these countries, like North Korea and, and in China, and remember he talked about this, this one pastor who they beat and they arrested and they told him not to preach in the name of Jesus to go back and disband your church. He had already been decades in prison. He went back and told the, the congregation what the government said, and the next week the congregation doubled. It's hard for us to even relate to that. And so Satan has seen over the years that the more he persecutes the church, the more the church explodes. And so sometimes he comes as a serpent, and he comes to infiltrate the church. And the problem with the church at Pergamos was they weren't, they weren't dealing with this sinful element in the church. The doctrine of Balaam refers to Numbers 22 to 24. There was a king of the Moabites, his name was Balak. And he saw the nation of Israel coming through their borders. And he had this uh, prophet who wasn't a true prophet of God. He was a prophet for hire. His name was Balaam. And so Balak says to Balaam, I want you to curse these people for me. So Balaam takes some money and says, sure, I'll do that. So he finds a place where he can see Israel spread out over the plain. And he opens his mouth to curse Israel. But it's kind of funny. And he blessed them. And Balak's like, what are you doing? I paid you money to curse the nation of Israel. Let's go over here. Let's, let's try this other place. And so Balak opens his mouth to curse Israel, and he blesses them because God would not permit him to curse the nation of Israel. And Balak got really upset with his prophet for hire. So Balak, um, Balaam in Numbers 31.16 came up with a new plan. His plan was to tell Balak, you get your Moabite women. You get them to encamp near the, the Israelites. You get them to begin to go into the camp and get them to begin to flirt with the Israelite men. And pretty soon, they're going to bring their, their immorality and their, their idolatry with them. And we're going to infiltrate Israel and weaken them that way. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what Satan was trying to do to the church at Pergamum. 2 Peter 2.15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. There were some in the church at Pergamos who were encouraging, intermarry with the pagans, get involved in the pagan practices, go to the pagan temples, and get involved with all the fornication and ungodly practices that are there. After all, you know, you, you need to be tolerant. People see things differently. And so God condemned those who were, who were promoting this. Now, this eating meat was not a preference issue like Paul had dealt with in Corinth. This was a sin issue. This was getting involved in all the orgies and the ungodly practices in the pagan temples. You see, sexual sin is never acceptable for a Christian. In God's eyes, sexual sin is never acceptable for anybody. But particularly for a Christian... God condemns such sexual sin. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, we saw this in our message to the church at Ephesus, and we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were, but we tend to think they were influenced by the Gnosticism of their day, which said, well, the only thing that matters is your soul. 
your body is basically insignificant. So you can take your body and you can get involved in all kinds of immoral practices, but your soul is going to be pure. And, you know, any sensible person knows that's absolutely ridiculous. By the way, there's no sin like sexual sin that will affect you at even the deepest level of your, your being. And so these people were clinging on to this, this teaching. And so the Christian could pretty much do whatever he wanted to. They turned Christian liberty into license and into lasciviousness. Erwin Lutzer says, the same Bible that talks so much about grace is so intolerant when it comes to sin. It's like the church that always wanted to preach about God's love. Oh, God's love, God's grace. God is so loving. God is so forgiving. Is he loving and forgiving? Sure he is. Well, let's not miss the passages about God's justice and, and, and his holiness and, and that God will not abide a sin within his people. Let's not preach about hell. We're just going to preach about heaven. No, you've got to preach the whole counsel of Almighty God. So instead of holding on to right doctrine, some in the church were holding on to false teaching. It's interesting. The church at Ephesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now the church of Pergamos tolerated them. William Barclay in his commentary says, In the ancient world, sexual morals were loose. Relationships outside of marriage were entirely accepted and produced no stigma whatsoever. This was Roman culture. This was the culture they lived in. This is the culture we live in. In Roman culture, a wife would have a legitimate, uh, a husband would have a legitimate wife to have legitimate children, but he would also have concubines and courtesans. Immorality and fornication in our culture has lost its stigma that it once had. And sadly, they've lost their stigma in many churches. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. In our culture, purity, virginity have been devalued, even mocked. Living together outside the bonds of marriage... No big deal. Everybody does it. And sadly, many Christians do it. So some in the church at Pergamos were encouraging Christians to conform to the accepted standards of the world. Has anything changed in 2,000 years where there are preachers out there and Christians who say, well, you know, we just got to, you know, go along to get along and don't be such a Puritan and don't have all the, you know, don't, don't be so rigid. You know, you need to loosen up. And, you know, this is the 21st century. And... But sexual sin will damage your life like no other sin. So now we better listen to what Jesus has to say. Jesus warned them to deal with the sinners in the congregation. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly. And we'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember the sword at the very beginning of this letter? Such sin can't be tolerated in the assembly of believers. Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The sword represents the word of God, which proclaims, yes, salvation, but it also proclaims judgment. Now, these letters come at the end of the first century. The Apostle Paul, in particular, had written, his letters to the church were already written. They'd already gone out. They understood about church discipline. They knew what the Apostle Paul wrote about sexual sin in the congregation. There was no excuse for them to be so tolerant of sinners in their midst. 
And the situation would not resolve itself. So Jesus expected them to exercise proper church discipline. Take care of this issue in your church. You know, the greatest anger that you see of Jesus in the Bible is for those who lead others to sin. In Matthew 18, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And we're seeing all kinds of um, abuse and mutilation of children and this whole gender confusion. God help those people when they stand. God won't help them when they stand before Almighty God. It's interesting that this Balaam was eventually slain with the sword under the, Jerem, uh, the Joshua generation. And so what is Jesus doing? He's admonishing his church to take the issue of sin seriously. So he's admonishing our church. He's admonishing us as individual believers. Take the issue of sin in your life seriously. And then there's this admonition again, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter contains this admonition. And every letter, all the letters are read to every church. So every church hears this admonition seven times. And this is where the Lord is saying, listen, this means you. Wake up. Listen. I'm talking to you. And sadly, many Christians, their ears are dull of hearing. Well, then, verse 17, it ends with great encouragement. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. He gave two promises to the believers at Pergamos because the one who overcomes is the true Christian. The true Christian perseveres to the end. Someone who says, I'm a Christian, they may even be baptized. They may even sort of live an outwardly moral life, but at some point they fall away. They were never truly saved. Because if someone is saved, then the Lord continues to, through the Holy Spirit to reinforce and, and to, they are, they are truly born again, regenerated. They have a new heart. Manna, we know, was given by God to the children of Israel in the wilderness. In Joshua 5.12, it says, Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. As long as they were in the wilderness, God provided this special manna that came down in the morning. They would find it. Psalm 78, It had rained down manna on them to eat, giving them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food full to the fill. What's interesting is that the Old Testament manna was a type of Jesus Christ who sustains us. John chapter 6, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, the Jews would hear this, and the unbelieving Jews would be like, what, what is he talking about? And so he spoke to them purposefully in what would be called enigmatic language. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He's, he's making a definite connection with the man in the wilderness. Chuck Swindoll says he intentionally pressed his metaphor to extremes to achieve two objectives. First... He left any reasonable person without excuse for adopting a physical interpretation of his teaching. How absurd to think he had cannibalism in mind. Second, he winnowed the wheat from the chaff, allowing the non-believer's own bias to carry them away with wind. 
And then the promise of the white stone. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, again, we don't know the exact meaning of this. We're going to find out one day. Uh, we know a victor in the games in, in uh, Greek and Roman culture would often receive a stone with their name written on it. We know that faithful Christians are promised rewards. Also, in the ancient world, amulets were very common. These trinkets were seen as good luck charms, often made of precious metals, often with inscriptions on them that only the person who wore it knew what the meaning was. Is that some allusion to something like that? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Jesus Christ is written on the hearts of his children to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so if there's an actual stone that he gives us with a name that only I know and he knows and no one else knows, showing how individual our salvation is, we can't say that with absolute surety, but it certainly means something. And Jesus knows what it means. And one day, we're going to find out if we know Christ is our Savior. What we do know in the Bible is that a new name in Scripture often indicates blessing from God. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And so God sometimes will give a name that indicates his absolute blessing. One thing we know, the faithful Christians at Pergamos including Antipas, went to be with the Lord. And whatever these enigmatic ideas are, they, they already know. They've already received that from the Lord Jesus. They've already been safe in eternity. Remember the old hymn, my name's written there on the page, White and Fair, or the other hymn, I've I got a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, and it's mine. See, many of these hymns and even choruses today come out of Scripture and references to the Word of God.